Hello everyone, my name is Wally Brown, host of the Urbanize podcast, and today I have the pleasure and honor of speaking with Dr. Megan Horst, professor at the School of Urban Studies and Planning at Portland State University. Hello. Hi, Wally. How are you doing today? I am doing pretty well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing all right. I'm staying inside from the heat. <laughs> yeah, I'm grateful it's cooled off the last few days here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes it has. I'm wondering, could you tell the folks a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so I'm an associate professor, as Wally pointed out, in the School of Urban Studies and Planning at Portland State University. And in my role as professor, I teach classes mainly in the Masters of Urban and Regional Planning program at PSU, but also at our undergraduate program of community development. And I'm currently teaching a class uh, in the Masters of Real Estate Development program. So lots of teaching. And then I also, as a professor, do lots of research um, and community engagement, and generally in the areas of food systems, land use planning and climate action are my kind of areas of focus and research and community engagement. So I can say more, but those are some of the buckets. And Dr. Horace is definitely a local celebrity among the food systems. I hear your name a lot when I'm around town. Well, that's so. kind. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Okay, so we just got a few questions for you today. Basically, um, this podcast is all about accessibility, just letting people know that this field exists, you know, and introducing to the people in it. So kind of, yeah, what led you to your position today? Like, That's a really good question. Um, I don't know, probably most listeners don't hear a lot about the field or the profession or the role of urban planning. Well, I certainly didn't as a kid growing up. Um, I didn't understand that planner, what planners did, or I didn't understand how our cities and suburban land uses came to be. Um, so I think that planners, we have, we could do a better job of letting the world know what we do and what we could do better. Um, but I got exposed to planning when I was an undergraduate college student and I was really passionate about environmental issues and became president of what what was called the Earth Club, the Environmental Club, basically at my undergraduate college. And because of that, I was invited to be a student representative on our the, the college's long-range planning effort. Uh, this, the college was engaging in a 50-year sustainability plan, actually. And the college is located in Florida, um, right on the Gulf, and is already being affected by, um, and certainly will be more so in the future, by rising sea levels and increased hurricanes. Um, but anyway, through that experience, um, our college hired a planning firm. And as a student, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. I was busy as an environmental studies student learning about climate change. This is back in the late 90s. That dates me a little bit. Um, but, you know, seeing the hockey puck charts and et cetera, learning about biodiversity loss, kind of all the, all the problems. And it was pretty depressing honestly, and my other field is social work. And so I was learning a lot about social problems. Uh, and then I got introduced to the field of planning and that seemed like a really proactive field where we could try to address environmental and social problems. So we were talking about what are still really salient kind of interventions like bike programs and compostable 
programming in the cafeteria and a on-campus farm and green buildings, just stuff that really is the bread and butter of kind of modern planning. So that, that was my introduction to planning. And I think the minute I met those people, I was like, I want to be an urban planner. And here I am some decades later, and I uh, am a professor in it, which is a different take than maybe a practicing planner. But I also really like um, teaching and engaging with students and research. So I get, I'm lucky to kind of sit in what is to me the perfect Venn diagram of like teaching research and pr the practice of planning. Uh, and also I'm lucky to be at PSU, which really prioritizes community engagement and community partnership and engaged research, um, which is also something I'm pretty passionate about. So that's kind of the, the long story of how I got introduced to planning and how I got here today. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I'm wondering, I have a trick question, not a trick question, but like a, yeah, there's an interesting thought question because we've interviewed a few people on here and a lot of times it's like a personal relationship or by happenstance. So like if there's like a young planner or like a person who like doesn't know if they want to be interested in planning, you know, like when you're at like that point in life where you're like, I know I want to do something, I don't know what exactly. How would you suggest someone reach out to find a planner to like talk to them to find out like what it's like? Like how would they find them if they if they didn't happen upon a process in action? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, there's lots of ways and it really depends where the young person is in the world and their access to different things. But I'd say, you know, kind of an obvious go-to place is the American Planning Association, which is the national association. Not all planners are certified with them. That's not a requirement of our field, but many are, and they have just tons of resources and they have focus areas. So for example, as a food systems planner, there is a food systems focus area within American Planning Association. And on that focus area website, it might be a few clicks away from the planning association, but they have like profiles or spotlights of practicing food systems planners. Um, so that would be a good way to identify folks and maybe contact them and see what they're up to, or at least read about what they do. And APA puts out, you know, promo videos, like what is planning? And they spotlight different planning kind of dilemmas, scenarios, cases. So that's just a good place to get kind of an overview. Um, but probably the best thing for someone to do is like right where they are, attend a public meeting yeah, of their city um, that's looking at a planning issue. And it depends on their passion and interest. Um, most, pla most planning interested people have a lot of passions and interests is, is pretty much every student. And I think that's one thing that draws people to planning is it's a very interdisciplinary multi-topic field. But you, know, you could attend a meeting about transportation issues um, in a suburban community and, uh, and, and kind of hear how the planners or the planning board, if there is one, something like that, grapple with issues, how they review development applications. And you might be disappointed about how your community makes these decisions. And you might, I mean, I know I attend lots of meetings and sometimes I'm very disappointed that environmental sustainability or accessibility for folks with disabilities or low income, um, uh, social justice and affordability are often not the values that guide planning decisions. They should be in my, in my opinion and in the values of the field, like they should be, but you know, attending, kind of immersing yourself in a local issue. And then there are lots of potential opportunities to get involved in local advocacy, depending where folks live. 
um, at the local scale or regional state or even national scale on different issues. So I know mostly about food systems and land use issues. And here in Oregon, folks could get involved with like Thousand Friends of Oregon um, or the Oregon Community Food Systems Network. There's lots of ways, but depending where folks live, there'd be other ways to be involved. So those are just some ways. Um, you know, you can always contact professors at uh, universities. One of our jobs is to respond to potentially interested students. Um, okay. So that's, of course, something to consider. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you for that. Okay. So we, you talked about some community engagement. Okay. So I'm wondering, what are some ways that you engage in the community? Like, hmm. Yeah, I'll share two or three that are with like really relevant right now. Um, for example, I have a meeting this evening. Uh, I'm a member of the Portland Clean Energy Fund. Sorry, I said that wrong. Portland Clean Energy Benefits Fund Advisory Committee. And the Portland Clean Energy Fund is was established by voters a few years ago and it um, levies a fee on larger corporations. And we sort of oversee this fund that is available to any nonprofit in Portland to apply for if they're pursuing the goals of climate action and social justice kind of combined. Um, so we distributed our first round of $9 million last, well, this recent season. And we're about tonight, the, I think it's tonight, the call for next round goes out. We'll be distributing $60 million or so in grant monies this year. Um, and hopefully about that amount, if not more, every year going forward. So really like some people call it, it's like a local new deal, green new deal. Uh, and what I think is really cool about the Clean Energy Fund is, is its twin focus on climate action um, and leadership and support of communities that are most impacted by climate change that mm -hmm. sometimes gets missed in like the big technocratic climate change discussions. So that's one way. I'm on the advisory board, so I'm just one member of a nine-member board, but I, that's a really way that I find that I can engage with the community and um, push myself. So that's one thing. And on more, and I should say the connection to food systems is that one of our funding buckets is renewable agriculture in the city. And so that's kind of the quote unquote expert hat I wear is a focus on that. Other members of the committee bring a focus on renewable energy, workforce, things like that. And then another thing I'm involved in, um, I'll just uh, need to pull up an email. But um, I actually just agreed to do this today, so hot off the presses for me, but I'm going to be on a farm access equity advisory group for the East Multnomah Soil and Water Conservation District. Okay. So we're lucky here in East Multnomah County to have a really proactive and well-funded soil and water conservation district, and they are um, really innovating on how to make farmland, how to permanently protect it have a good environmental practices for soil and water, and then how to make sure communities, in their words, that have been impacted by racial discrimination and dispossession have access to the land. So hmm. I'll be on, an, they're sort of really expanding their efforts in there. So I'll be on um, an advisory group on that. Um, those are just some of the ways that I engage in, honestly, they're the most reward, like, it's amazing to work with other community members that share kind of the same values and to try to be creative and make, you know, do what we can within our sphere of power. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I'm sure people can um, probably find reports if they want to find what are they up to, you know? Certainly, um, yeah. The Clean Energy Benefits Fund has an active website. Um, there's also a kind of a 
community group that sort of watchdogs us. So they're another group that you can, they're just called the Portland Clean Energy Fund Coalition. So both of those have active websites. The Multnomah County thing is fairly new, so I'm not sure there'll be a lot yet, but stay tuned. That makes sense. There's the watch group. They make sure you don't soil the water conservation efforts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's important. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. So, huh? Let's see. All right. So, I think you've you've been hmm, you've been inside the city, and you've been even like an advisory. You've been like kind of a consultant in some ways. So, personal opinion: If you want to get something done, who do you go to? Oh gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's a really good question because. I'll answer kind of more broadly at first uh, rather than like a specific person, but I I think you're you're raising a really important question for planners and prospective planners to think about, because I think I'm aware that in our planning education, we sort of, we teach ourselves a lot of like technocratic fixes or how to make a good plan or how to engage community, but we don't always really think about how to influence power, how to make power, take power, create power, et cetera. Um, and just how to influence the actual policy process because planning is highly political and what planners can do is very dependent on the political and the cultural social context. And so I think the first thing to do is do like a power analysis of like the issue. So let's just say um, on climate action here in Portland, we are not implementing our climate action plan at all from despite it being an award-winning plan uh, <laughs> country, we're, we're just not we're falling short of our own goals and our own goals aren't good enough for what like we need to do to address climate change now um so if a planner really cared about that who do, what do they do uh well you would do a i think starting with a power analysis like well who's influential about this climate action plan who would who would you know how do you raise a big stink about it is it I mean, one thing you can give testimony at city council, lots of people do that. I would say it's much more effective if you do it with hundreds or thousands of other people. So being part of a big social movement, being part of Sunrise and 350PDX and all the groups. I tried to join Sunrise, but I showed up too late. Are you too old? I'm too old for Sunrise. (laughs) No, no, no. I showed up too late. Like the sun had already risen, so I wasn't. (laughs) Um. Somewhere in my house, I have the climate action plan that you're talking about. <laughs> I, have, I, I have a bunch of plans from around the city in my house. <laughs> that sounds like a great planning nerd that you are, Wally. I love it. <laughs> okay. You were saying. Well, you know, locally, like at the city, who do you go to? I mean, there's staff that work on policy, but really it's who the elected officials are and who their power base and who their base is. And and we have to elect people that care about it, but also who are the different advisory boards. So there's a planning and sustainability commission, et cetera. Um, So there's lots of places to raise a fuss and that would change if you're talking about a suburban jurisdiction or Metro or the state of Oregon or whatever locality, you know, a listener might be in. It's yeah, I think planners need to understand their political context and use either an, in, you know, they can use a combination of insider outsider strategy, like try to work change from the inside within the power of our profession and, or be part of a social movement from the outside and trying to push planning and local policy to be better. And some of that's just what role that you end up in and where your skills are. Um, probably we all need to be doing both really. Yeah. 
I think that makes a lot of sense. Let's do it. So I'm wondering, yeah. um, Portland's kind of a unique area where we have mayors, a bunch of advisors. There's an advisory body for everything. <laughs> yeah. So like, what is that? Like, at what point do you think that, I think a lot of times I was in planning school and I, even in government, I hear a lot of like community engagement from like kind of almost like we're going to, the community's over there and we're going to go to them, extract them and bring it back, you know? At what point do you think, tell the message to all the community members out there, at what point do you think we should start encouraging community members to maybe run for office or run for a sustainability commission, which I think is an appointment? Well, huge. I mean, yeah, you're raising really big points. I do think, I think that the city of Portland, I can only really speak to Portland right now. It's the one I mostly pay attention to. And I don't claim to be an engagement expert. Some of my colleagues are more, but I do have a fair amount of kind of experience on all ends of it. And we grapple with it on the Clean Energy Benefits Fund a lot. Um, we, and we're trying to innovate and do things differently. For example, back when we were having in-person meetings, we're not doing that right now because of COVID, but um, we didn't have them downtown. We only have them downtown once in a while. We mostly rotated them around North and East Portland. And that's because if you look at the demographics, that's where most of um, lower income residents and communities of color live in Portland. So we wanted to be geographically more accessible to those communities. And we rotated our meetings to be not at like city hall or city buildings, but they were hosted in buildings run by kind of local trusted community partners like ERCO um, mm. or other ones. So like that's a move that I think the city is trying in lots of different ways. So that's a positive strategy of kind of being more in, in the community, but you, and, and I think another big thing is I think some planners and community engagement professionals in the city are, are very aware of the importance of like having long-term mutually beneficial relationships with community and compensating community for their expertise and their time. And so there's a movement to not just have like one open house, but to have kind of more long-standing trusted relationships. And that's important, but you raise a whole other issue, which is also it should be that our planners and elected officials should look like the diversity of the city and should especially consists of folks who have kind of lived experience in, in equity matters. So like should we should have a lot of folks of color, black, indigenous, Latino, uh, various Asian identities should be part of our planner mix and policymaker mix. Folks who have disabilities from low income backgrounds should, there's so many barriers to that, including getting a graduate degree in planning or policy. Those are, you know, barriers. Um, it's, it's heartening to see, I guess on the one hand, it's a little heartening, but you probably know the statistic. It's also frustrating that in Portland's history, only two city council members have ever come from east of 82nd. And east of 82nd has definitely um, more low-income folks and folks of color, like I mentioned earlier, but also it has, like, it is where the population is growing in Portland. Like it's the future and it's where most of the kids live in Portland, a high percentage of kids. So it is, it's the future of our city. Um, that's where our elected officials, they should have lived experience of East Portland. So, sorry, I got a, I got a little on a tangent there, but um, you're right. And I think planners could do a better job engaging, but I think me as a professor of planning, our school, we can do a better job of recruiting and supporting students to 
of diverse backgrounds to graduate with planning degrees and become planners. Um, and then mm -hmm. on the on the elected official side, that's a little outside the realm of planning, but certainly as, as a citizen activist, I certainly try to support and fundraise for and film bank for different elected officials that I think understand issues and will advocate for issues of justice and for different communities. Um, so there's a whole lot more we all could be like, and, and many groups are doing that. So it's, I think, easy if folks are interested in supporting that, hopefully they can find an organization to kind of join and support. That makes a lot of sense. And that kind of draws me to like this next question, especially like with you being a professor of planning and also climate change and food systems. Do you think that in the United States or maybe even in Portland, that it's becoming um, more necessary to have more like technically skilled, not, all right, let's see. I guess like more technically skilled decision makers in terms of like solving the climate crisis. Like people will have a basic um, understanding of climate and these things. Do you think that we'll, do you think that, because it seems like there's like this, to, it seems like there's a lot of goals that are aspirational and it's kind of like there's like the person who's very loud who gets in but may not have like the technical experience to move things forward so i mean basically not like moving to like a technocracy but like kind of having like like a kind of organized society like portland all of our commissioners like you can you can run on a you can basically run you can run on like a housing like platform like Chloe Udaily did. And this is this isn't like critiquing Udaily, this is saying like as an example, Udaily was very pro-tenant. And then when she got in, she never had the housing bureau, you know? And so you effectively have a leader who has specialties in one area and then gets another. You know? Do you think that there's kind of like do you think it would be beneficial to have like a structure that kind of has people kind of being placed towards their expertise? I mean, that's a good question. Uh, Portland is a little unique in that our city councilors become agency heads. I, I think most cities don't operate like that. And there's a lot of people that critique that system in Portland because that can change every two to four years. And so agencies sometimes get a lot of like whiplash when a different director comes on. And you're right that a lot of times the incoming counselor may not have a lot of expertise in that area. And and they bring may bring a real personality change, but a real values change. I've heard planners working at the Bureau of Transportation, for example, who've just commented that over the last 15, 20 years, you know, they're, they'll be working on something and a new director comes along and they totally shift direction and priority. And that sounds really frustrating for the planners. I could see there's some possible benefit to changing if, you know, if it may bring yeah. new ideas in and, you know, presumably these people were elected by the people, but, but I, but to your point about, sure. I mean, in my, in my ideal world, yeah, everybody um, that's heading an agency or like, or working an agency would have, would have a combination of like technical skills and, and knowledge and really be data informed on their actions, but would also have, but we also need planners and policymakers that have kind of a wide range of skills, not just as you pointed out, technocratic, but also people skills, relational skills, cultural skills, um, and that are humble about their technical knowledge, 
So I, I guess it's not an easy answer. You asked, I mean, everybody, in my opinion, that's working for any sort of city government should definitely have a base knowledge in climate science and should have read the recent IPCC report that just came out two weeks ago. We all, I mean, every human on earth should read that because it's our shared, it's our shared fate. I mean, not shared in that, for example, rich and poor people globally are affected very differently and will be, but um, shared in like, our ecological systems are collapsing if we don't do something quickly to really change course. Um, and, and the report is very, what's the word, just very clear about it. And it leaves room. It says we have nine years to change and we have the technical know-how. We know what the solutions are. That's true at the city scale and the global scale. Like it's not a matter of not having the technical skills. I don't necessarily have the technical skills in designing um, transit vehicles that run on electricity, but there are people out there that do. Um, and together we all, we actually all have the knowledge. It's just the garnering the political will to regulate the bad practices out of existence and to promote the good ones into existence. That's where we, so we almost, if anything, need more people who have that ability, that second ability to like lead policy. To bring people together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and to build a, yeah. But they do have to have a basic knowledge of climate science and like, how are we gonna act? But I, I think, yeah, so I don't know, I guess like everything it's, we need both and. <laughs> okay, let's see, that's, I think that's pretty cool. So I'm wondering, how do you see your role like playing into this? Like, is it your role to kind of like train, like just teach people about planning train the technocrats to like advise the political class based on like the opinions of, based on like the sentiments of like the general population, like, or is it to kind of like just build this more comprehensive shared understanding where like maybe the, like the average person is more technically savvy. And so when they become like in any role, they understand how it, like connects, like what, what do you see your role as? Like, and this, if like the city were a forest, what would be like your niche in the ecosystem? I like that metaphor. Um, well, I've been, I'm thinking about this a lot uh, because I'm, especially cause I'm on sabbatical right now, which hopefully will afford me a little extra time for self-reflection and thinking about how, how I really want to prioritize my time and energy in coming years. But, you know, as a professor and, scholar, I think in that role, if I were if I were a planner with the city, I'd answer this question differently. But but right now I'm a scholar and probably will be for a while. And so I guess I see my role in that position to be a community-based critical scholar. And what I what I mean by that, kind of that's part of my role, is you know, I think uh, community always is constantly raising questions for research um, and when possible to partner with them and try to answer it. Um, so right now, people are asking how many folks experience, are experiencing worse food insecurity. Um, here we are, it's 18 months into the pandemic or 20 months now, whatever it is. Um, and are, you know, and a lot of the government benefits are about to change. So just like, what's the status of food insecurity among groups? Has it gone up? And how to, like, what are the right interventions? So for example, there may be a role for me as a scholar to like help answer that question. Maybe I have data analysis skills to offer or interviewing and focus group skills, those sorts of things, or I know how to comb what 
look for data sources. So all kinds of, so to be a critical, and like a critical scholar, I have, as a scholar, I get to critique public government. I get to critique planning practice in a way that people who are paid for by the city or whose job it is to do the planning and kind of have to keep a cohesive message coming from the city. I don't have to do that. I'm, I'm, my job is to be critical of practices if they're not going well. So if the city is failing to meet racial equity goals, I don't need to sit here and say, well, we're trying to do a good job. My job's to point it out, like say, no, you're failing. So I think that's another role is to, to be, and not to be critical, just to be critical. I think some scholars sometimes fall in that trap, but more like that, that is a, that's a kind of a, a unique role we get to have. And so to do that in a way that's maybe helpful. And sometimes I think planners on the inside want us on the outside to be pushing, you know, um, through our scholarship and through kind of public engagement. And then, you know, the other hat I wear is to be an educator. Um, and I get to work with the students who come to PSU. So constantly trying to improve how I facilitate classrooms, how I set curriculum and really prepare students for the, the world we're in right now, which is a really unique moment in history, right? We are, I mean, I'm thinking a lot about climate change right now. So while we're supposed to be talking about food, it, climate change is really on my mind with the, the, the record temperature yeah. in Portland, the smoke and that new IPCC report and et cetera. So anyway, but students who are coming in right now, like they are operating, we have nine years, according to the global scientists, to change course completely. And that is going to take planners and everybody working in the urban profession. And so I'm thinking a lot about my role in making sure our students are prepared to lead the way or to be part of a transformation. Mm -hmm. And similarly, on racial equity and social equity, we are living in, with 40 years of growing income and racial disparity, um, despite lots of talk about equity um, at the national and local scale. And that is, it's, it's a crisis moment for many, especially when we layer on climate change and the pandemic. Um, so anyway, I guess, I think our role as educators is to make sure we are preparing students to be planners and to like make good decisions in this, in this world we're in, in this sort of very complicated and scary world, but, but we need their planners to be leaders. So that's, that's something I think about really seriously. Let's do it. Okay. Thank you for that. Thank you. And I have a question for you for yeah. to unpack some stuff. You said IPPC. I'm trying to break it down for our listeners who may not be up to the acronyms. Could you please? <laughs> Sorry, acronyms group here. Yeah, that is the International Panel on Climate Change. Inter Sorry, um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. If if one were to if your listeners Google that phrase international inter intergovernmental it's international but i should say intergovernmental panel on climate change they basically um it's a global consortium of scientists who've been working together for gosh i think like 30 years now to study climate change and they just released their sixth report over the last 30 years um and it's unequivocal in its statements about um like what what's happening in terms of climate change and and what what our window of opportunity is and they make recommendations recommendations maybe in a soft sense of like what we can do they make recommendations based in science of how we will draw down from i think we're at 460 parts per million uh, carbon in the atmosphere how we we need to get to zero basically like how we're going to get there we need to get to net carbon zero um so we need to be taking carbon out of the atmosphere in addition to no longer emitting anything in it 
and they have anyway so that's that's the acronym i got a little more wordy than i should have there <laughs> no i think that makes a lot of sense thank you for that we got the climate change we got okay so that's cool i think that's great all right so that's kind of kind of scary but we're kind of moving it forward you think we can do it <laughs> well um yeah that's a really good question i've been thinking about that a lot i also um one of my favorite journalists is rebecca solnit uh, she writes for the guardian among other and um she has this breakdown of how i mean it's both scary but it's also an opportunity the scientists are very clear we have nine years that sounds scary but it is also like but it's not too late like we have nine years and we can do it. We've come together to solve the ozone hole before. Like we can do it as a globe. Um, we so uh, she she I forget exactly how she does it, but she sort of emerges from reading the report with, you know, like this is our we've got some time still. We got to do it. Like I guess I'm trying to have that sort of moment. And what I tell students and what I tell myself a lot is sometimes I feel depressed or scared about it all, but I also remind myself sort of similar to what I said earlier is I have this opportunity to be a planner in this very unique moment of history where we get to try to change climate change. We get to try to yeah. change our societies and our land use patterns and our transportation patterns to be better for the environment. We get to like be part of this transformational moment in US and in urban history and in global history. And so like, that's a pretty cool, it's a big responsibility, but it's also really, cool like it's a cool moment to be alive in a way so i try to remember that <laughs> let's do it let's do it so i'm wondering if you had a let's say we had a magic wand we could change one thing about the world what would you choose about the world is that what you asked mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh my gosh well so many things i suppose but i'll just start with like as a planner response i think there are cultural and social changes, but a very practical thing, because it's what I'm thinking about today, I guess. Um, I mean, there are bigger trends outside of planning that I want to change. Wealth inequity um, is a big one. And like, how do we change the 600 years of colonial power? But, but just to talk about a planning response, um, a very practical one that's in the IPCC report is that every particularly low-income folks, that all of their housing would be insulated um, to the best degree possible, like to the highest standard possible and weatherized um, so that folks can withstand these 115 degree days we're getting in Portland and that they have good air quality on smoky days and don't have to use as much energy to heat their house in winter so they're not. So it's a very practical thing. I would weatherize the globe. <laughs> I'd start with the US because it would be huge. And you know, on a food systems front, there's probably a lot more to say there, but um, yeah, like, so practical thing that maybe there's other root causes we could get at, but that's just a nice practical thing that feels like we could do that. We've got, we could do that in nine years. We could, we could really weatherize every single house and apartment building. We could do that. And everybody would, it would be good for everybody living in their homes. Their homes would be more comfortable and healthy. So it'd be a win-win. That's pretty cool. I think that's pretty nice. Okay. <laughs> wow. We have a question uh, from, we have a riddle for you today. A um, riddle? Yes. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, which, which detective uh, moonlighted as a real estate agent? Oh my gosh. I don't know, Wally. 
It was uh, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I guess I should have probably guessed. Was <laughs> I, that's funny. I don't. I'd have. I'll have. You'll have to send me the reference there when he's a developer. That's funny. <laughs> oh, I'm. That was a complete joke. That was a, just a joke. Oh. <laughs> I thought maybe there was some reference to it in Sherlock Holmes books. Oh, just because we were talking about Holmes, we talked about housing and weatherization, and that's. <laughs> Throw puns in the movies. Okay, yeah. got it. <laughs> I think that's great. I think, yeah, this was this is really good. We have one last question for you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all the to like the up and coming generation of planners, the existing transition of uh, condition of planner. This like community folks. Like, if you had to share one thing about planning, to so be like, hey, like here's where here's what we are and here's where we should go what would you say here's where we are and here's where we should go well having been a planner for a long time now i think and i teach an undergraduate introduction to planning class and one of my goals of that class is so that when students are done they just like cannot see the world the same way anymore they now like see zoning maps and like the zoning code like they see it when they look at the world and they understand why the suburb has no apartments in it and why everybody's stuck driving their car. Like they just see how planning made that landscape. Um, And it made Mm -hmm. Northwest downtown Portland, this walkable multi-scale multi-use district. Like, so I would want, I guess, um, the average listener to like- yeah, well, I live in Southeast, so I can't agree with that. (laughs) Um, But you know, like, that they would see how the legacies of planning over the last whatever you know 150 years have made that landscape and on the flip side how planning is can be changed to transform our landscapes into something different now it's going to that's going to depend on what the existing we're not going to probably radically alter suburbs really easily um but anyway so i think the average listener could really really be able to see the influence of planning on the landscape and how it creates communities that are good environmentally and socially and otherwise, um, or that are not, that are exclusionary by income and race and other things that force people into cars and where they have no other choice that are dangerous for people, et cetera. Um, So, and what planning could be, well, the reason I got into planning is I still believe that planning is a profession that it's part, you know, that many professions have a role to play in a transition to a better environmental and socially just world, but planning can shape our urban and suburban and just our built landscapes um, to be more environmentally sustainable and socially just. We have a lot of policies um, and ideas out there. We have experience from all over the world and thousands of years of human history, and lots of cool researchers. So we, it's a cool profession to innovate and really do applied work to change our communities to be like better for the people that live in our communities. So. I guess that's the takeaway. Thank you so much, Dr. Horst. I think that's wonderful. And that's, yeah, that's what we have today. So thank you, Dr. Horst, uh, associate professor, assistant professor, associate. Associate, yep. (laughs) Associate professor over at Portland State University School of Urban Planning, Urban Studies and Planning. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Wally. Yeah. So we'll see you soon. We'll see you around. Uh, eventually, we'll have you. I what, what's what's next for you? 
well, yeah, sabbatical this year. So not teaching um, and not being too involved in the school this year, trying to, um, I'm working a lot on research in the next year. Um, I am, I've got this national research project on farmland, which I didn't talk a lot about food systems today. I think climate action's been on my mind this week. Um, so I'll be, you know, in Portland doing some stuff, but probably not as visibly active in the, in, uh, the, the Toulon school community this year. Um, but, you know, doing my community-based work. <laughs> I think that's perfect. Trying well, to use the time so to re-energize for what's, for the rest of my, for the next kind of phase of my career, I guess, in life. Yeah, I think it's good to take time to like, what is it, Plato said, was it Plato? He said like, um, the life unexamined isn't worth living. Right, yeah. Yeah, I really wish everybody had more time for reflection, time away from busyness, work, etc. Oh yeah, I've been leaving meetings early. I love Zoom. I just turn my camera off, I'll make a sandwich. <laughs> I'll just leave meetings. <laughs> yeah. time is precious you know time and is I precious think... and figuring out what you really need to be at and not and is really a good life practice <laughs> yeah of course i'm 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 happy that i've seen honestly i've seen people be more upfront from this pandemic one silver lining is that people have been more upfront like before people were like yeah i'll kind of go you know, but now people have been more straightforward. Like, I don't have time for that. What's the purpose of this? What is, like, asking for outcomes, you know? Because I think a lot of things that we're doing, like, people don't just show up to work because they like it. Well, some people do, but, like, even if you do like it, like, you want to get stuff done so we can make these nine-year goals, right? Like, Yeah. Let's do it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Holly. I'll see you around, um, probably virtually at least. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you soon.